So um, I'm just curious, quick show of hands, how many of you guys have had your first Christmas? Anybody had their first Christmas? We had our first Christmas yesterday. All right, uh, first Christmas yesterday and, and more to come. Uh, the Christmas season is wonderful. It is great. It is exhausting, right? <laughs> and stressful. Uh, and man, I just think about that. Like part of the reason why Christmas is wonderful is tied to the reasons that it's stressful, right? It's wonderful because it's this tremendous season of giving. And giving is a lot of fun. It is enjoyable. At least I have to tell myself that every year. Um, because, hey, you know, uh, you guys remember the five love languages? Like gift giving um, is one of the five love languages. I literally scored a zero on gift giving as a love language. Um, so it's, it's just, I, I love the other four ways to say I love you. That's really, really what it is. So gift giving can be stressful. It can be stressful because ideas are hard to come by. But parents, if we're honest, if we're honest, giving can be stressful because it's expensive. I mean, nobody likes to say that because this is supposed to be a season of giving. Uh, but, you know, that you're, you're watching your checkbook, you're seeing the way things go. And, and Christmas can be a stressful time of year because of giving. It is oftentimes usually a sacrifice for us as parents and grandparents and frankly anybody who likes to give a lot of gifts. Giving can be a tremendous sacrifice. Now when we give those gifts and we see them be received, for almost all of us it's a sacrifice we are glad and willing to make. It gives us joy and happiness to, to see others receive our gifts of love, uh, whether it be at Christmas or birthdays or whenever. But these things can be a tremendous sacrifice. Now, not only are we sacrificing our resources as we give gifts, Christmas is also a tremendous sacrifice of time. Like I said, several of us, many of us, have multiple Christmases to get to. If you've got kids at home, you know how it is. You've got Christmas concerts at at school and then Christmas parties at work and Christmas parties at church and all these things. And through this last month, you're running around crazy. So Christmas can actually be this time where we have to sacrifice a great deal of our personal time. Projects don't get done around this time of year, do they? Because we're investing our time in so many other people. So by the end of Christmas, we find ourselves tired and exhausted, and some of us find ourselves broke. So it can be a particularly stressful time of year. But I think when it's over, when we get to January and we look back on December, we say, it was worth it. It was worth it. What a great month. What a wonderful time we got to spend with people. What a wonderful joy it was to give those gifts. And so even though we think it was worth it, it doesn't mean it wasn't a sacrifice. It doesn't mean it wasn't a sacrifice. But I think when it's all over and we stop and we look back, we think, well, it, it was a sacrifice, but it wasn't that big of a sacrifice, right? I mean, it cost us, but it wasn't that big of a cost. It wasn't that big of a sacrifice. Today, as we begin to look at our story in Luke chapter 6, and we see Jesus give his first uh, real teaching to the 12 disciples after they're chosen, what we're going to see is that Jesus called them to make a big 
sacrifice. When we look back at Christmas, we might say, well, that wasn't that big of a a sacrifice. But for Jesus and his disciples, he calls them to sacrifice everything. He calls them to sacrifice everything. So what I wanted to do today as we begin our teaching in Luke 6 was look back at a passage we've discussed several times lately in Luke chapter 5, the call of Peter and also the call of Levi, who is Matthew. Let's look at Luke 5, verses 8 through 11. It says this, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, who is the Apostle Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they, the word they there is important, when they had brought their boats to the land, they left, what? Everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. So what was the end result of Peter's encounter with Jesus? Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and his brother John all left everything to follow Jesus. No small sacrifice. They left everything. Now Luke continues a few verses later in Luke chapter 5, verses 25 through 28. It says this, It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. And we talked about that this Levi is Matthew. Uh, Saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving, what? Everything, he rose and followed him. So what was the end result of Jesus' calling of Levi, of Matthew? What was his result? Matthew left everything. So of the 12 disciples which were called out, five are said to have left everything. Five. Now, does that mean that the other seven didn't leave everything? I think they did, right? But we see specifically Luke say that five of the 12 disciples left everything. Now, by everything, does it literally mean everything? I don't know. Let's not split hairs on what everything means. I think what we need to get our head around here is that they were willing to leave their old life behind in order to start fresh and new following Jesus. Now, our passage today takes place right after Jesus selected the 12 disciples. He chose them out of a larger group of disciples. So we should think of Jesus as having a large group of followers that are his disciples. That's maybe with like a lowercase d. It's not the proper noun. It's just his disciples. Then he called out of this group 12 disciples, which he calls apostles. Okay, and these are the 12 disciples that we think of on the regular. All right, so Luke positions his teaching that we're going to be looking at today Uh, right after Jesus calls these 12 disciples, it's at the beginning of their ministry together. And this is the first thing he says to them. Let's listen. This is our our primary text today, Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. This is what we're really going to be chewing on as we move through the message today. Luke 6, 20 through 26. And he, Jesus, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, 
Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, as we begin our, uh, our, our uh, exploring our passage today, I want us to really get our heads around who this uh, passage is addressed to. So we're going to kind of skim through the verses right before uh, verse 20. Luke chapter 13, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 13 says this, And when day came, he, Jesus, called his disciples, so that's the big group of disciples, and chose from them the twelve whom he named apostles. Now when we go through this list of twelve, we see Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and then Matthew is mentioned, and we can tell from other passages in Scripture that this Matthew is most likely Levi, who was the tax collector uh, called to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verse 17 says, And he came down to them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And finally, as we look at the beginning of uh, verse 20, it says, And he lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, and then we get the teaching that we, we just read through. All right, so, so the 12 disciples are a portion of this larger group of general disciples, and the general disciples are a portion of the larger group of the masses that are there listening to Jesus. Luke tells us that Jesus is specifically addressing his followers. So as we look at this text today, we should be thinking this text is written to those who are following Jesus, okay? He is the rabbi, he is the teacher, and there are those who are following uh, Jesus as a rabbi. So it's meant for his followers in general, but I think it's probably appropriate to say that even though it was to his followers in general, it was especially for the 12. All right, now one more quick observation. All right, verse 17 says that this teaching happens on a level place. It happens on a level place. This sermon is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. The Sermon on the Plain. All right, now because some of this uh, content is, is so familiar to what we see in Matthew's account of what we know as Sermon on the Mount, all right, people often, often assume that this is the same event. And though they are very similar, I think it's important that we see they are probably different. Okay, so as we're talking about Jesus as a rabbi, we're talking about him as a teacher, we need to remember that Jesus is an itinerant preacher. Now, that's not something we see very often anymore. Most preachers, like myself, have a church where we uh, uh, serve and, and worship together, and, and I'm here regularly. I don't preach anywhere, ever, really, except for here. Okay, but Jesus was an itinerant preacher. That means he went from place 
to place to place to place to preach. Which means, if he's going to be proclaiming his gospel, his message, he's going to proclaim a similar message in many places. You guys understand what I'm saying there? So when he preaches in Nixa, it's going to look similar as what he's going to preach in Marshfield, like he's going to preach in Kansas City. You, you get what I'm saying? So if you happen to hear him in one town and the next, is it going to be the exact same? Probably not. There's going to be some variation as he takes his message, the content of his message, and customizes it and molds it and shapes it to reach that audience in that moment. So when we look at Scripture and we see the Sermon on the Mount and we see here in Luke the Sermon on the Plain, our mind, if, if you're good Bible scholars and you know your Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see all these blessed, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, and your mind's going to go, all right, is this the same that we see in Matthew chapter 5? And in some ways, the answer is yes. But because of the nature of Jesus' ministry, it is okay and appropriate for it to say one thing on the Sermon on the Mount and a similar but slightly different thing on the Sermon on the Plain. So what we need to do as we read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is allow it to stand on its own and speak for itself. And as we read the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, we need to allow it to stand on its own and speak for itself. And then we can also use the other sermons where they're common to illuminate and help us get a good understanding of what Jesus probably meant by what he said in each setting. So the reason I'm going to all that, I mean, I, man, that is a long lap around the text. I think it's worth it. But I want those of you who are saying, well, this isn't quite what it says in Matthew chapter 5. Why is it different? We're not really going to explore the why is it different today except for to say Luke 6 says something slightly different and we're going to focus on what Luke 6 is teaching us. So I just wanted to make sure all our cards are on the table so you guys know what's, what's going on as we dig into our passage today. All right, so where did this all begin? Where did we start? We started out by talking about sacrifice. This all began with a discussion on sacrifice. Luke made it pretty clear to us as we've moved so far through the book of Luke that when Jesus called, people followed. When Jesus called, people followed. And through the example of Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, we see that following Jesus means leaving everything behind. It means leaving everything behind. Now, I think it's easy for us in our comfortable Midwest 21st century lives, all right, to immediately contextualize this idea of sacrificing everything into some kind of like over-spiritualized sacrifice about, all right, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to sacrifice our, our future, we have to sacrifice our plans, our dreams, our desires. And sure, I think those things are absolutely on the table. But the context of Luke chapter 6 is this. Physical, material possession. The context of Luke 6 is being willing to walk away from your previous life in terms of what it is physically. That is what we see in our text. Luke 6 won't let us keep this in only a spiritual, non-material realm. Does it apply in the spiritual, non-material realm? Yes. Okay, it does. But can we leave it there? Luke 6 will not let us. We need to understand that the disciples literally left everything to follow Jesus. They left their homes. They were on the road, right? 
Okay, they left their families, at least in part. Maybe some of their family members came with them. Maybe those in their immediate household came with them. Scripture doesn't give us a lot of information on how their families were handled. They at least left their home for a season to follow Jesus and perhaps go back and attend to the affairs of home, only to go back and follow Jesus again. They left their families. They left their home. They, we saw with Peter... James, John, Andrew, and with Matthew, that they literally left their businesses. Now, in the case of these five people, these are self-employed people. They are walking away from the businesses that they built and started. They're walking away from it. So when it talks about them leaving everything, are you seeing how much this is physically rooted in our world and what they're experiencing today? Matthew 8 says that Jesus had no place to lay his head. So as they followed Jesus, they were literally wandering around with him in the wilderness, in the, in the countryside. Remember what we read last week as we talked about the disciples eating on the Sabbath? What were they doing? They were taking advantage of the laws that God had given them in the Old Testament for the poor. That the poor could go through, the traveler could go through and pick heads of grain and roll them in their hands and eat the grain. Okay, so literally they are living off the generosity of others. So when, when it talks about them leaving everything, we need to understand the level of sacrifice that they were experiencing as they followed Jesus. This was a high cost to follow Jesus. And that's where he says this to them. In a way that would make sense to them, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. They understood being poor. They may have been poor before they followed Jesus, but they were definitely poor when they did follow Jesus. Blessed are you who are hungry now. They're literally picking grain to survive, to eat. They understood hunger, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. When we uproot ourselves to follow Jesus or whatever that may take, there's going to be some pain, some sorrow, some missing of those who aren't with you where you are. So they were weeping. They were, they were sad. But he says, you shall laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, in this way, he might be talking a little bit about what's happening now, but I think he's warning them about what's to come in the future. So he tells them in verse 23, Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did the prophets. And what he's saying there at the end of the verse is, hey, they, they did not appreciate or value the prophets either. They maligned their names. So you count yourself in good company when they, they malign your name. Now, I hope you guys remember back to a message that I shared at the beginning of our Luke series, way back when we were talking about Christmas in September. And I thought it was a lot of fun to get to preach a Christmas message when we weren't anywhere near Christmas. I shared with you that, that Luke teaches us that as followers of Christ, we should be happy. As followers of Christ, we should be happy. And what we did is we looked at the word blessed and we looked at the word joy in the first two chapters of Luke, and we found that if we keep our eyes on the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, then we can be happy people. We can be happy people because our hope is in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he is bringing. Now, in our passage today, we see this word blessed used all over the place. 
Blessed are these people, blessed are those people, blessed are these people. And we talked about this back when we did Luke 2. The word blessed is the same word for happy. Happy. So I just, I'm going to read that first part for you guys with the word happy in there. Happy are you who are poor. Happy are you who are hungry. Happy are you who weep. Happy are you when people hate you. I mean, that just sounds like crazy talk. Okay? But what we need to see here is, is what is it that Luke wants us to understand as Jesus uses this word happy to talk about those who are following him. I want you to think about your life and when you've experienced happiness, when you've experienced sacrifice. Now, I, I framed the beginning of this message in the idea of Christmas because when it comes time to sacrifice for our kids or our grandkids or our parents or those we love around Christmas time, I believe we are happy to make those sacrifices. There is joy in the pain of what it costs to give in those moments. I have observed, all right, in, in my father-in-law and mother-in-law, in my mom and in my dad, the joy that comes from sacrificial giving to their grandkids. It is fun to watch. When you love and value something, what you get in a return is worth more than what you have to give up. And when you give that up, there is joy and happiness in saying, I place this much value on that thing. I place this much. And it brings me joy to spend that kind of sacrifice on whatever it is I love. And so when the disciples walked away from everything, what, what Jesus is telling them is, hey, there is joy in that sacrifice. These things that you feel, this mourning that you feel, this hunger that you feel, this homelessness that you feel, it's all a gift. And it's one that is worth it. And as you express giving that gift, what you're going to feel is joy and happiness in declaring that thing worth it. All right, that is what Jesus is saying. All right, so in that frame of mind, Jesus says that his followers have made a wise choice, okay? Because with this sacrifice come some serious rewards. Though they may have no home, they will find a home as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Though they may not have food that, that they desire, they will truly be satisfied in what Jesus offers. And though they, they may know hurt and pain, there is joy and laughter in the kingdom of God and joy and laughter when, when walking with Jesus even in the here and now. And finally, Jesus places all of this sacrifice for the short term here on earth in the scope of eternity when he says that the reward will be great in heaven. Jesus is calling his disciples to see something that I know that, that from time to time I personally can lose track of. Jesus wants his disciples to see that the world that we live in, the things that we have, the things that we experience are here today and gone tomorrow. He calls his disciples to follow him. And as he calls them to follow him, he's calling them to the long game. We can't just look to the immediate present in the things that are around us. We have to see that the kingdom of heaven extends beyond our lifetime, extends beyond the here and now, and into eternity. 
And what he wants us to see as followers of Jesus Christ is that any of this momentary suffering, this momentary hardship, is nothing compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ and the blessings he has to offer for eternity. And so since our minds should be set on these things, he's saying we can hold loosely to what this world has to offer us because anything we can gain in this world will pass away, all right? What sticks is the eternal things. So focus on that. Set your mind on on what is above. That lack of attachment to these earthly things will help you walk into obedience no matter where Christ calls you. Listen to to this. Uh, We're going to look at the woes part of Luke 6 in a minute, all right? But but I want you guys to see this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Colossians 3, 1 through 10. This is Paul's encouragement to the Colossian church to set their minds on things above. It's very similar to what we see in Luke 6. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, uh, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, he's talking about appears again, his second coming. You will appear with him in glory. Now, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, as we looked at this list in, in, uh, in, the, in, in Luke 6, the blessed are you because this is going to happen. All right, I want you to realize that so much of what we see in the woes, uh, in the woes section is, is rooted in earthly desires. Now, look at what Paul says to put to death. Okay, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On, the, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So when we talk about this idea of walking away from everything, we need to keep in mind this walking away from everything is a mindset that elevates personal, earthly, human desires, makes these things which, which are supposed to serve us be the things that we are supposed to serve. Okay, so how does he continue? Verse 8, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeking what you have put off with the old self, with its practices." And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we see this old way, all right, the old life being thrown off, leaving everything, putting on the new life in Christ Jesus, and walking forward in the life that Christ has. To offer. Now that sounds all like churchy and, and mysterious, so let me boil it down in, in a simple way. Paul says life lived in grace and mercy, and, and the grace and mercy and love of Jesus is awesome. That's what he's saying, okay? The, it is the best experience that we can have. The best experience we can have is not rooted in the things of this world, but rooted in being conformed to the image of our Creator. 
putting on his image as we walk forward in faith in Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul would say that this is not only our eternal hope, which it absolutely is, but he would say that, that this is the best way to have your best life now. It's not in pursuing earthly gain and things of that sort, but the way to have your best life now is to pursue, pursue Christ, to walk forward in obedience in him. Because the alternative to walking forward in obedience is experiencing the wrath of God. So I want to read a, a passage to you guys that's actually one of Elise's favorite verses. It comes from the Old Testament. All right, It's the Lord admonishing his people through the prophet Isaiah. And God says this in, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now listen here. If you are willing and obedient, if you are what? Willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. Do you see the word play on the word eat there? All right. You can eat the best of the land through obedience to the Lord or shall be eaten by the sword. And whose sword? That's the Lord's sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What are your options? There is no third option. There is walking in obedience, and there is rebellion. Now, I love the way uh, this, this gets said in Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is Moses at the end of his life. He's about to die, and the people are about to go into the promised land. And Moses lays down one last challenge to his people in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses says this, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your, hearts, if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So when Jesus lays out these blessings in Luke 6, he's telling his disciples, right, like Paul, like we read in Colossians, he's telling his disciples, set your minds on things above. Like Isaiah, Jesus is telling his disciples, be willing and obedient. Like Moses, Jesus is telling his disciples, choose life. That's what he's setting before them as we see these blessings and we see these woes. And when I, when, I, when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, which we don't have time to get into today, when we read 1 Corinthians 13 and we talk about the love chapter, I think we oftentimes start in chapter 13, verse 1. 
but we should really start at the last verse of chapter 12. And the last verse of chapter 12 says, and I will show you a more excellent way. I will show you a more excellent way. What is the more excellent way? The more excellent way is walking in love. Walking in love for the Father. Walking in love for your neighbor. And he says, Paul says, if we don't walk in love, then what? Everything we do is noise. Everything we do is just clatter. It's purposeless. It's meaningless. He calls us to walk forward in love. Love for God and love for others. And if we walk forward in obedience and in love, then the things that we do have meaning. Not because of anything we do, but because we are following Jesus Christ and we are walking humbly before him in obedience, willingly, with eyes set above. This is where our hope is. Our hope is in Jesus Christ for eternity, but also for the present. This is our earthly hope as well. Let's listen again to, to what Jesus says to his disciples at the, begin, or at the beginning of our, our passage here in Luke 6. It says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Do you think that satisfaction is only eternal satisfaction? It is satisfaction in contentment here and now. It may not be the filling of your bellies, but it is earthly satisfaction and contentment that comes from understanding that, that Christ is in control and what's most important is walking forward in obedience to him. Even if we have to make the sacrifice of food, we can be satisfied and content here and now in Christ Jesus. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. What's this whole thing say? Happy are, happy are, happy are. Right? So even though we may weep and mourn from time to time because of the sacrifices and the hurt that we experience, there is joy and happiness promised here and now on earth as we follow him. It's going to look different. It's not going to be rooted here in material things. But there is happiness. There is laughter found here on earth and in eternity. Is every day going to be sunshine and roses? No. Are you going to walk around giggling like a schoolgirl? Probably not. But because of Jesus Christ, even when you find yourselves in hard times, you know that's not ultimate. So even in the midst of your suffering, you can have laughter. And what's he say? Blessed are you when people hate you. And he goes on to talk about this idea of your name being cursed and, and scorned. And when we follow Jesus Christ, what matters is his name above all names. And so our reputation is secondary to that. I, I love this. What our temptation is in this world now is to trust in the physical world. But trusting in God frees us from being trapped by trust in the physical world. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through 1 Timothy, and we're about wrapping up with 1 Timothy. But this is a passage that we read just this week in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. I want you to listen to how Paul talks about our relationship with riches. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't set your hopes on what? The uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly reply, uh, provides us with what? Everything. 
to enjoy. Do you see the word enjoy? Do you see that like following Jesus, even in the midst of sacrifice, does not mean there's not enjoyment? Okay, we need to see that. All right, uh, Richly provides us with everything. So they left everything, but God provides everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Truly life, life eternal, life in Christ. As they are generous with the Lord has given them, they are storing up treasures for themselves in heaven. What Paul is saying to them is set your eyes on things above. It's not just about what we experience here and now in this life. Even if you're rich, if you have plenty, we don't see that particularly condemned in this section. What we see is the, that is not ultimate. That's not the definition of blessing. That, that wealth, what you have, is an opportunity to be a blessing to others. I, I think that's, that's powerful us to see. Don't trust in the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides everything to enjoy. When we trust in our riches, when we leverage our happiness on the circumstances of this world, we set our hopes on things that won't last. Just think about the last couple of years. What's our economy been like since 2020? I mean, that has been a roller coaster ride. Okay, think about the, 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 the tensions that make us uneasy as we see this war play on and on between Russia and Ukraine. We have literally seen a plague hit the world and cause huge disruptions. All right, and I don't care where you stand on climate change. Over the last couple of years, what have we seen? Huge droughts. We've seen uh, storms. We've seen lots of hurricanes, wildfires. What does this tell us? That, that the, the things of this world are uncertain. They are uncertain. We cannot put our hopes in these things. So my point is simply the same as Jesus. If your hopes are in the comforts of this world, then your hope is constantly in jeopardy. If your hope is in the comfort of this world, then your hope is in constant jeopardy. So let's look again at the woes that were mentioned at the end of our passage. It says this, starting in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. So just like Jesus places happiness or blessing in the physical and the spiritual plane, I think that we need to point out that the woes contain both the physical and spiritual as well. What Jesus is saying is that if we look for satisfaction and happiness in the physical world, then our goal will always be that we have to have more. All right, if our goals for happiness are based in the physical world, then we will always have to have more. That is an insatiable desire that will not end. But also it means that any physical uh, pleasure or security we have, we have to defend it no matter what, because that's the way to have happiness, right? Because our security and our happiness are linked to these earthly things, we have to defend them to the end. If we lose them, then we lose it all. All hope for happiness is tied to these earthly things, so we can't let them go. So Jesus says, if you're looking for food to make you full, 
then the second you don't have food, you're panicked. You're no longer able to be satisfied while you're in need. If you're chasing amusement and laughter, then when it's gone, you will mourn and weep, looking for something else to laugh at and amuse you. If you're chasing the approval of men, then when you lose it, you'll be broken. Jesus says that the world approved of the wrong men anyway. So why would you want their approval? But Jesus is also reminding us that these material things can't save. They're not ultimate. If you pursue them, you won't uh, be able, they won't be able to save you from your sin. And when you die, they will be taken away from you. So for all eternity, if you look for your consolation here on earth, there will be no consolation in eternity. In eternity, you won't be full, you'll be hungry. It will be constant mourning, and your name will be ruined if these are your pursuit and your goal. So, he says, happy are those who walk away from everything. Happy are those who realize that this world and what it has to offer will never satisfy and can't save. Happy are those who set their minds on things above. Happy are those whose sins have been washed like wool. Happy are those who, like Moses says, choose life. Happy are those who set their hearts on Christ and his kingdom. This is the invitation of Jesus. He's not calling us to sacrificing good, something good so that we can get something bad. Do you hear that? He is not calling us to sacrifice something good so we can get something bad. He's calling us to sacrifice an earthly illusion. He's calling us to sacrifice human impulse. And he, he reminds us And he reminds his followers that pursuing these earthly comforts is like being a sailor lost at sea, drinking that salt water, thinking thinking it's going to satisfy. It may make his tongue wet, but at the end of the day, it's the very thing that kills him and drags him down to the bottom of the ocean. So Jesus' invitation is not so much an invitation to sacrifice, but an invitation to know the joy and happiness in him that will last for eternity and that will last when our earthly possessions fail us. That's what he's calling us to. And that is his great Christmas gift to us, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we might know him, be close to him, be forgiven, and able to walk forward in obedience, able to eat the good of the land that he has offered us so that we can can have true satisfaction here and now. When all these earthly things fade away, one thing remains sure, and that is Jesus Christ and life in him. So as the praise team comes, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to our message today. My my question to you is, where are you putting your hope and trust? Are you putting your hope and trust in things of this world? Or are you putting your hope and trust in the creator of the world? So as we have a chance to respond, the altar's open. 
If you need to come and lay down things before him, then please, by all means, whether it has anything to do with anything I preached or not, this is a great time to take our, our prayers before the Lord. If you need to talk to somebody about what it means to, to place your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, I'll be down here. You can talk to a believing neighbor uh, who's around you, and we would love to point you to the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Would you, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you do. We thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And as we think about the sacrifices around Christmas time, help us to remember that those gifts we give are worth it. And Lord, help us to remember that the sacrifices we make in this world to follow you are so worth it because you are the greatest gift we could ever receive. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us this morning. Let 